Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here. Today's guest is Andy Che, and Andy and Amy Eckhart started Fisheye Farms as a small market garden in Detroit, Michigan in 2015. They now farm two acres of land in the center of the city. They serve an 80-member CSA, area restaurants, and a small weekly on-site farm stand. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. Hey, give us a little bit of an overview of your farming operation, because I actually looked you up on Google Maps, and there wasn't a lot on Google Maps, but then I went to your Instagram and saw beautiful shots of the farm, so it's definitely happening up there, but um, yeah, tell me about what's going on. Yeah, sure, so um, we have been farming on our our new site for three seasons now, and, and I've been checking Google you know, every <laughs> couple months to see if they'll update that satellite image. Um, but we're operating on two acres in Detroit proper, about two miles from downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, we're growing on about an acre of bed space in, within these two acres. Um, the two different fields are separated by about four blocks, which mm-hmm. um, isn't, isn't too bad to get between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, we're mostly on a um, permanent raised bed system, uh, very similar to Elliot Coleman or uh, Jean Martin's model. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we kind of have it divided between high intensity and medium intensity. Um, and then we also have a couple of satellite farms that we have for low intensity crops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, when you say low intensity, talk to us about what that means. Uh, so that means things like garlic and winter squash. Mm-hmm. Um, we've used celeriac as a low intensity crop before, but now it's kind of more in the mid intensity area. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in those blocks, then do you just rotate those particular crops? Yeah. So most of our rotation, um, is within like our mid to high intensity, um, bed, bed blocks. Um, the low intensity stuff, we tend to just give it fallow years or, okay. yep. we'll, or, we'll, or we'll go into more of um, herbs and flowers in some of those areas. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So what's your background? Um, so I started farming around 2012 in Chicago. I was originally interested in agriculture as a way to help mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm. I, t- I was in school. I went to DePaul University in Chicago, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I was taking political science classes. My, my parents wanted me to get into law or medicine, some kind of um, mm-hmm. high-yielding career that I could make money in and be comfortable but that I knew that wasn't the path I wanted to take um so I I kind of became interested in doing something about climate change and I I saw farming as a way that I could make a direct impact mm-hmm. and as I learned more about farming and agriculture there were other aspects of it that I really liked like the social benefits bringing healthy and nutritious food into food deserts and 
and feeding people. And I've, and I've always had a, a great love for food. Um, mm-hmm. And I also really enjoyed physical work. I loved being outside. Um, and so I kind of decided like I would start learning as much about farming as I could. I was, I was in a liberal arts college, but I, um, I'd made all my classes about farming in some way. And it, I started getting better grades cause I was just more mm-hmm. interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I helped to found a gardening club at school and then I got an internship, which turned into a uh, job on a one and a half acre urban farm in the South side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then from there I went on to start Fisheye Farms. Very cool. So then talk to us about that urban farm in Chicago. What was the, the kind of mission there? What's the, what was the goal of that operation? So I was working at the Gary Comer Youth Center. Um, it was a one and a half acre urban garden on a former brownfield site that had been remediated. Mm. Um, we were running an after school and summer program for uh, teenagers to get job experience. Okay. And so I was the assistant production manager which basically meant I was, you know, uh, leading a group of 15 to 21 uh, groups of teenagers, uh, anywhere from 13 to 18 years old, mostly to provide job training skills, very like soft skills, like showing up on time, you know, wearing appropriate clothes Mm -hmm. for the work that you're doing, um, but also teaching them about gardening and entrepreneurship and, um, so we were growing, we were growing market vegetables. We were selling to restaurants. We were doing a farmer's market on site, and we were also uh, doing a small CSA to some of the teachers. Mm-hmm. So in that job, talk to us about working with those kids, because that's something that I'm very passionate about. When we ran our farm, we, we brought a lot of, uh, you know, teenagers in and they kind of like grew up with the farm. They worked with us for a couple of years and then we would see them go on to other jobs after they had enough experience. Um, you know, did you see that happening there? Were the kids excited about the farm? The, the kids did like the farm. They liked the work. There were some aspects where I felt like it was difficult, maybe for me personally, but also for the, for the kids. One, you know, at the time I was 21, 22 years old and like not that much older than the kids mm-hmm. I was supposed to be managing. Um, and, and I was also, you know, really into farming, like just getting into it and just, you know, really romanticizing it and, and hadn't quite, you know, face some of the hardships that I faced later in farming, mm-hmm. um, starting my own business. And one thing that I didn't quite like about my experience there was that the kids didn't get to see like the, the fruits of their labor, um, no mm. pun intended. Yeah. Like I really enjoyed, you know, harvesting the crops, washing it, and then taking it into restaurants and coming back with, you know, some money that could go back into the program. And the kids I felt would have loved that process, but because it was an after school program and we're working with kids in an institutional setting, there were just too many logistics to get them to come out with me to do deliveries and, and see mm-hmm. their see their produce and their hard work turned into like delicious dishes and, and mm-hmm. to see the money come back, which is a huge part of what kids who are living in more impoverished areas, like mm-hmm. that's, that's a big deal. They want to see, they want to see the money. And I, I don't know if we can get more kids into farming if there's not 
a path to financial freedom with farming. Mm. Oh, that is key right there. Yeah. I, 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 I like to tell people like, you know, people say like, oh, there's no one investing in farming or in like regenerative farming and the organic side. And I was like, no, there is. We just have to do a much better job of showing the potential profit because money follows money. And so we right. just need to show that profitability and we will have investors lining up all over the place to invest in that. Right. So, and, and so it was that thinking that kind of led me to wanting to start my own farm. I wanted to get out of the nonprofit farming world and I wanted to start a farm that I could show profitability. Mm -hmm. And, and while I might not have a youth program on our farm, I, I do try to incorporate the kids in the area and, sh and, mm -hmm. and kind of lead by example in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does a typical week look like for you on the farm? Uh, so we are working, I would say six and a half to seven days a week. Okay. Um, Monday and Tuesday are our CSA pickup days. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also do a delivery for the CSA on Tuesday, as well as any restaurants that order. And then we also do a Thursday delivery for restaurants and a Friday farm stand that we also offer pickup to any anyone who orders through our website or through text message or email or however we can take orders mm -hmm. cool uh, and what is the labor situation is it you is it uh, you plus um you know someone else i know amy works on as well on the farm as well right yeah so the main uh, bulk of the labor is myself and amy we also have a business partner hannah clark so she was her and her business partner were the owner of our, our second acre of land that's near our farm. Okay. Which, which we recently purchased from them and we're bringing Hannah, one of the partners from, from that farm into our farm. So she, she works with us. Oh, cool. And then there's a host of different people who will do you know, odd jobs for us. I like, mm -hmm. I haven't, I haven't mowed the farm in, in three years because I, I just hire that out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a nice way to take that labor off of me and also to get some money in some other people's pockets. Talk to me about that. Cause that's something that, you know, we stress a lot is the um, specialization in farming that, you know, as a farmer, you should really be focused on the farming, but I hear pushback from people and say, well, I can mow grass faster than somebody else, but um, you're outsourcing that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I could, I could probably mow grass faster than my hired help does, but I also don't have to worry about mowing the grass and it, it frees up a lot of time for me. And, you know, in terms of specialization, I, I, right now, I wish I could work on the farm more. I am working on the farm a lot, but I'm also working on fixing up um, a house across the street from the farm. So a lot of my time has been spent mm. there. So with all the stuff that I have going on, there are definitely times when I, I see the value in just hiring someone else to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that means you don't have to deal with the, keeping a mower running, you know, making sure you're getting the right fuel and oil and all that good stuff. Yeah, exactly. I, I do. I have a mower. I have a, a tractor uh, mm -hmm. implement mower and I have a regular push mower and um, I could use those if I want to, but it's just so much nicer to, Hire the the man's name is Paul. I I hook him up with other jobs. You know, if anyone is like, oh, I'm looking for someone to mow grass, I have him do it, and and he he needs the money, and he appreciates pre, appreciates mm -hmm. the jobs, and and he does 
as clean of work as I would do, but you know, it's, it's the only downfall I would say is sometimes it doesn't get done right away. Mm -hmm. And and I just try to let that go. And I just try to say, you know, he'll, he'll get to it when he gets to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And less mowings means that you end up mowing the grass less during the year. So you pay a little bit less. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yep. That's kind of like right now, my father-in-law does um, the property that we, we have. And, uh, you know, it's like I, I try to space them about every 10 days because that's about as long as I can do without it getting too bad. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, it, and it's no fun traipsing through long grass. And, you know, we, yeah. we have landscape fabric and wood chips uh, around our field blocks. But, you know, the grass and weeds, they'll grow right up next to that landscape fabric. And it's it's... Mm-hmm. it's no fun to have the bugs hanging out in there and having to walk through that, that mess. So, and I love the look of a nice, yeah. nice mode farm. It just, it just helps you feel more clarity mm-hmm. in your mind. Yeah. I noticed a picture that you're using felt pots for some of your crops this spring. How has that worked out for you? Uh, it's, it's working out good. I, one of the best parts is that they're free. Um, yeah. we, we get them from a friend who is a marijuana grower and they would just throw these pots away if i didn't come and uh recycle them for them so you know they'll they'll let me know anytime they have some and there are times where i have to turn it down because i'm either too busy to come pick them up or yeah just don't have the space to store them but we there i got a few different spots on the farm that i i think would make a great um felt pot bed i think Mm -hmm. the the photo you were looking at is kind of like a flower bed that we made out of felt pots about three pots wide by maybe 75 pots long Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it's a a pretty big bed we keep most of the peat that they use for the marijuana in the bottom of the pot and then we just dig the root ball out plus Mm -hmm. a little bit of peat and then fill it with compost and Mm -hmm. then we'll we'll plant we do some direct seeding in them but mostly transplants we also mm-hmm. have a lot of peppers planted in them that I don't think we have any photos of, um, kind of just filling out the margins of some of our uh, hoop houses. Yeah. No, and, and those are pretty big. I mean, those are what, two feet across, two feet tall, or maybe 18 inches tall? Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. I, I think they're about 10-gallon uh, pots. Okay. Uh, they, they, they produce pretty good fruit. Uh, the fl- we have a lot of edible flowers in them and some cut flowers right now, and it's looking they're looking good. The peppers that we have planted in the uh, hoop house margins are looking good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one downfall is that they do require a lot of watering time mm-hmm. because they do dry out kind of fast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, gotcha. So what, t- walk us through like the equipment you use on the farm. I saw you had like a, like a Ford tractor and I believe with a rototiller. Uh, oh, so uh, that, that was actually, that's a neighboring farmer. And I, maybe we can get into that later. It's so like the farming community that we have here in Detroit, which is awesome. So oh, for, yeah. for bigger equipment like that, I, I'll just hire out um, a neighboring farmer to come do that for me. So I have a tractor that's a 19 horsepower Kubota mm-hmm. uh, B7100. I think you're yep. interested in, in these tractors as well. Oh yeah. Um, he has a Ford that's a 25 horsepower, uh, a little bit better for opening up new fields using his double bottom plow. And he can mm-hmm. just, ro- he's got bigger tires so he can kind of roll over some of those divots better than I. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I have a Kubota B7100 that I use. Um, and then most of our other tools are all at a hand scale. We're, we're using the Tilther uh, mm-hmm. bed prep rake and a sod roller for most of our bed prep right now. Okay. Um, I use the, the single row Jang. Um, I use the six row cedar. Um, I use a lot of hula hose as well as I have a couple of the mutineer hose from the yep. other side. Uh, so mo- and I also have a Haas um, double wheel hoe. So the, those are kind of our main, the main equipment we have on the farm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so with your your Kubota, does that have a rototiller on the back? It does have a rototiller. Uh, right now, its main use though is the um, loader bucket. Okay. So yeah. Moving compost, moving, moving compost around. Um, building driveways using crushed concrete and things like that. That's kind of where our tractor mostly gets used right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the actual bed flips is then done with a tilther. Yeah. So right now, and this is, I would say is one of like our weaknesses. The bed flip is like, if we'll take salad greens as an example, we are, we are pulling out by hand um, beds of Mizuna and arugula and lettuce Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really time consuming. So we are looking at getting a BCS with a flail mower. Mm-hmm. And I, I've recently borrowed one to kind of check it out to see how it goes. Um, and so I think we will be purchasing one of those by the end of July. Mm-hmm. Just to give you that next step up easier to just knock things down. Right. Especially we're trying to keep like overhead and labor costs low. So if it's yeah. something that, you know, Amy and I can just deal with a bed flip much much faster than you know that's going to save us a lot of time i one thing i find is that you know we don't often pull the salad mix out when we need to because it's such a daunting task you know Mm -hmm. i wish i I would love to be able to just say okay let's pull that bcs out and let's let's mow it down and put a tarp over it and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. two weeks. exactly yeah exactly yeah because then it allows you to get more turns in in the field and be more efficient Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's one that's, I think the BCS is definitely going to be our next investment in tools. Mm-hmm. So I was seeing that you're using fire hose as a weight system for your row cover. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So the fire hose um, was an idea because I was getting so tired of carrying around sandbags. Mm-hmm. Um, and we use a lot of row cover, especially insect netting. Uh, we, we grow a lot of Mizuna and mustard greens for a, what we call our spicy salad mix. And, and we have a lot of flea beetles in Detroit. I'm not sure if hmm. what the reasoning is, but there's just a lot of flea beetles around. So if I didn't cover most of our brassicas, I'd have a lot of unsellable crop. Uh, so the insect netting um, is necessary and we needed a weight system. So I was thinking about these fire hoses. I was looking online at some, used ones that you could get from junkyards and have Mm -hmm. them shipped to you. Um, I was able to meet a Detroit firefighter and he was like, Oh, we have tons of decommissioned fire hose. Um, We, we, and we just want to get rid of it. Yeah. Bring it on over to the farm. And uh, sure enough, they, they came over with a box truck and a a gate lift and they dropped off three pallets of four inch fire hose. And the beauty of it is that 
the fire hose itself, when it's rolled up, weighs maybe 60 pounds. Mm -hmm. And when you roll that out over, you know, the length of the bed, so we have um, 40 foot beds. While all that weight per foot might not be that much, it's a continual weight. So we're not Mm -hmm. getting flea beetles coming up underneath some, like in between some of the areas where we used to have sandbags and there would be a part of the Mm -hmm. row cover where that might blow from the wind. Um, And they're, they're just so much easier to deploy in the field because you can just roll it out. Sometimes I will just, I'll just bolt like, like a bowling ball, throw it down the the path Uh and adjust it uh, as needed. It's also really great for the um, silage tarps. Oh yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah. We've actually been thinking about actually trying to create something that had like um, edges that actually you could like, and they could just like fill with water. Um, But it's just the manufacturing just adds so much cost to everything that it doesn't make it worth it. Yeah. I I mean, I was looking at lay flat hose too Mm -hmm. during Mm -hmm. this experimental time. And I was thinking about, maybe getting some lay flat and filling it with water and putting end caps on it. Um, but the fire hose for us was free and mm-hmm. the, the kind of cloth nature of the fire hose is kind of wrapped in an insulative uh, fabric, almost like a, uh, like a denim almost. It mm-hmm. has like a, a bit of a grip that can yeah. grab onto the, the fabric that you're trying to hold down. Yeah. And then I'm assuming uh, getting them up is pretty easily. You just start rolling them up from one end and. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to roll up. Um, they stack pretty nicely. We've, we've kind of been creating little um, stations around each of our field blocks with pallets on the, on the corners or at the edge of the field where we'll stack up a couple tarps, a couple fire hoses, maybe some row cover that's not being in use at the time. And, uh, that way, when we want to tarp something, it's right there at the edge of the field and the and the weight system is there too. So mm-hmm. it's nice to have a lot of them. Um, I've sold a couple to some gardeners around the city. Um, friends of mine, I'm like, you got to try this fire hose. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to start asking around in our area because I'm sure they're they're out there. So talk to us about some of the infrastructure. I know that you have, you kind of, it's not, it's not like a mobile farm, but you have a lot of like movable slash um, semi-permanent infrastructure. Yeah. So we, we built our, um, a lot of our infrastructure out of shipping containers. Okay. Um, they're kind of laid out in a formation where there's a hallway um, created by them. Um, there's two with doors facing each other. One is our, tool storage and like mm-hmm. workshop. So we have like a workbench, all of our tools, like hand tool, farming hand tools, as well as construction tools. And then we have one of them is built out into a uh, walk-in cooler. Okay. Now talk to us about how did you insulate the walk-in cooler? The walk-in cooler, we um, hired a company to come out and do some closed cell uh, spray foam. Okay. Yeah. Um, we framed it out. Uh, with aluminum studs mm-hmm. and then we had uh, the company come out and they did uh, about five inches of closed cell foam and then we have an R7 poly ISO um, screwed into the aluminum studs. Okay so that's kind of the cap. Right yes exactly. Very cool 
Very cool. And um, how big was that cooler? This cooler, um, the container is an eight by 20, but it's the cooled space is about eight by 15. Okay. And then what did you just use a regular cooler door or build your own door? We built our own door. So we, we built a wall. Um, we had them spray foam that wall. And then right now we just have an exterior door mm -hmm. uh, in place that we bought from a, a big box store. And I hope to put some insulation on the inside of the door soon. I'm just kind of waiting for a chance for the cooler to be a little bit more empty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's one of those, we'll get done at some point tasks. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I want to put some uh, plastic over the walls to either an FRP or mm -hmm. some kind of uh, sheeting over the, the poly ISO just for, mm -hmm. high, like, for gap certification and things like that. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. Are you certified in any way or is that just something that you'd like to do for your restaurants? Um, it's, it's something I'd like to do for the restaurants. I, I see grocery stores as a potential um, market in the, in the future. Um, I've gone to a bunch of GAP training seminars, mm -hmm. yeah. but I haven't actually done the certification for it yet. Very cool. Now, with your wash and pack, you said that's in one of your um, containers. Is that laid out in like a single line? How do you have that laid out inside? Yeah, so our, our wash pack is actually not inside of the container. It's in the hallway created by the containers. Oh, okay. And, yep. And we have a roof over the top of them. Um, it's kind of laid out more in a horseshoe. Okay. Yep. That totally makes sense. Yep. So um and i and 50 percent of that wash pack area is kind of dedicated to um salad washing so we have um the bubbler and the spinner both of which i built uh using your tutorials okay um then we have a stainless steel table that has a drawer for all of our labeling supplies and a whiteboard hanging above that table so we'll go kind of from we have a mixing tub where we'll mix the different varieties of greens mm -hmm into the bubbler, into the spinner, and then packed on the table. And then we can check off on the whiteboard when something's packed and, and done for the customer. Nice. Um, and then we have a root washing table that kind of doubles as our tote washing table. Uh -huh. And then some pallets and shelves for all of our um, storage and packing supplies. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about like just the management of the farm. You know, there's always endless tasks to be done. What systems have you set up to ensure you focus and tackle those most vital priorities? Uh, we're using a couple things. I would say the main three things we're doing is one, we're, we're committed to doing a weekly meeting with mm -hmm. Amy and I, and then anyone who's working with us at the time. Um, and then we are, this year trying tend as a crop yep. planning and task management software yep and then the whiteboard uh, just you know putting priority things on the whiteboard especially uh, organizing our orders um so i would say a combination of those three things weekly meetings uh that we are committed to holding every week uh the tend software mm -hmm. and, then, and the whiteboard yeah. And so are you using 10, you'd say it's fullest potential or using it more as just a general, talk to us a little bit about that integration. Yeah, I think we're definitely not using it to its fullest potential. There are definitely aspects that we need to work on more like integrating a task um, per planting. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it is really helpful for 
crop planning and kind of filling in gaps and holes. I also love the like the pre-planning features that it can have, like uh, helping you do your seed order was, I mean, one of the biggest things that I that made me stick with Tend and go from the free trial to uh, buying the membership. Um, so, you know, seed orders, you know, we'll, we'll spend somewhere around like two grand, uh, four grand on seeds in the, in the mm-hmm. winter, getting ready for the season. And sometimes that task or in the past, that task would take me a week just because I'd be going through the spreadsheet and, mm-hmm. and trying to get the right amount of seeds and always ended up over ordering because I didn't want to be short. Yeah. Yep. Um, but one thing I really liked about Tend was it had already built my seed order for me. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I was able to kind of go through the 10 list and then just build my carts on, on whatever uh, seed companies I was using. And uh, it had pretty accurate seed counts and amounts that I needed. And it made that uh, pretty p- painless. And I feel like saved us money just by not over ordering. Nice. That is a very, very, uh, that can be a, a quite extensive task. Yeah. You, you wouldn't think it would be so hard. Uh, and like when you're farming or gardening on a smaller scale, it, it can be fun. But once it's, once you start getting bigger seed orders, it starts to get a little bit more nerve wracking. Yeah. I mean, we used to actually do three specific seed orders every year. So the first one we would do would be in December and that would be all the onion seed because onion seed um, was always something that was always a little short. And Mm -hmm. so we would make sure to get that onion seed order in. Then the main one would be done in January. And then we would usually do a, like a, usually an April one. And that would be usually for the winter squashes and fall brassicas. Um, and then obviously, you know, you'd usually do a couple fall ones for like winter seeding and stuff, but yeah, it, uh, yeah, it's, it can become a quite a, uh, a task. Actually, when I was out at uh, Harmony Valley farm out in, I believe they're in Wisconsin. Um, it's, it's, if you ever have a chance to go there, I definitely recommend cause it's like a hundred acres of vegetables and incredible precision. Um, just unbelievable precision. Um, and they had an entire cooler that was just devoted to seeds. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like they had like 25 pound bags of peas and then like, you know, one pound containers of carrot seed and beet seed and stuff. So yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was something else to see. Yeah. See, I mean, seed storage is always, is always difficult. Yeah. Hard to find this uh, spot for them. Yeah. What do you use for seed storage? Uh, Right now we have some, uh, we have two totes that have uh, adjustable dividers. Oh, Uh, pretty big totes they i'd say they're probably about like three by two by maybe uh one and a half tall i got got them from uline mm-hmm. uh, it was like one of our one of our first purchases when we started the farm and we've just been using those and we keep them in the front area of the cooler which stays a little bit more cold but it's definitely still gets up into the mm-hmm. the 80s sometimes, which you know, is not ideal. Yeah. So talk to us about the overall aspect of your career as a farmer. What do you think has been the hardest thing that you've had to do? Oh, I'm buying land probably and the, and the challenges that came with farming and not owning mm-hmm. a big farm property. Uh, you know, when we started, I started on one city lot, um, 
which is about 30 by 115. Mm-hmm. There's only about 1,200 square feet of bed space. Um, and we did we did well with that, but it definitely wasn't enough to make farming our our career. So we, we knew we had to get more land and that and that proved to be very challenging. Um, mm-hmm. I'm originally from uh, the Detroit area. I went to school in Chicago and I, I got into farming because I had heard about it in Detroit and I, I thought, Oh, well, if I'm going to start farming, I might as well do it close to family. And, and if Detroit is this great place with all this yeah open and easy to attain land, then I should go do that. And it, it proved uh, much harder than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Was it the cost of land or just the availability or the financing? It's the availability. So a lot of the land is actually owned by the city or the county. Yep. And they don't make it easy to buy it from them. The The price isn't horrible, but they, they just, they're a little conservative about what they want to sell it to. Um, and I think somewhat understandably, um, yeah. but you had to, you have to convince the city, uh, which is who we bought our land from, you just have to convince the city that it's it's a good idea for them to sell it to you, and and that can be challenging without like a business track record mm-hmm. or some financing or capital behind you to to start that up. Yeah, did you have to go for financing for the land, or? Yeah, so uh, and getting financing uh, lined up, I think, really helped us get the ball moving. Um, we had had a lot of talks with the city to buy different parcels here and there, and we would get, you know, halfway through before something would go wrong. But as soon as we had some financing, which we got through Steward, um, the city started to say, oh, okay, it looks like now you can actually implement some of your plans and here we, we can sell you this land. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about working with Steward. So it was, a, it was a loan directly for farm ownership, for land ownership? Yeah, so it was, it was structured like a construction loan. Um, okay. We were able to buy the land and put up a lot of our infrastructure uh, right away, which I feel like really helped us kind of hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. Um, we had already built the market, you know, with our small farm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to be able to go into already having a wash pack, having a cooler, having the land, we bought a lot of compost with, with the steward loan. Uh, we put up the fence landscape fabric hoop houses so you know we were able to take what we had learned and and the market and the following we had created um and then just start producing way more and and we were um we were able to start selling and it just really helped accelerate the growth of the farm nice nice who would you say have been your mentors over the years as you've been starting your farm so I, I wanted to tell you a, a story. I, I kind of wanted to maybe make it like a, a theme. Uh, these two mentors I had that I think, and I think it's a funny coincidence that um, at one time they had both been my boss and okay. they're both named Andy. Okay. <laughs> uh, so my original farm manager at the Gary Comer Youth Center in Chicago, Andy Rosendahl, um, he really taught me everything I know about vegetable production um Hmm. he he taught me how to grow salad greens he taught me how to wash 
every, like everything we grow. He taught me everything I know about washing and packing. Uh, weed control. There's just so much stuff that I learned that I learned from him. And this was before I had, you know, read the Market Gardener or a lot of the books that I've read since mm-hmm. then. But I didn't really know what I was doing when I started farming. I just knew that I wanted to, and I give Andy a lot of credit for teaching me how to farm because all my other farm education has come either through YouTube or, or books mm-hmm. and talking to other farmers. Then another Andy who I feel like has been a mentor to me has, is Andy holiday. And he's the chef at Selden standard. Okay. Um, one of our first restaurant accounts that we got and he's been great because he's been a constant supporter of the farm and also someone that I can talk to about selling and growing vegetables and, and how, and what he's interested in and what other people might be interested in as well as just like business help and giving mm-hmm. me pep talks and, and guiding me and telling me when I should be more firm about something or when I should, you know, let something go. There's, there's just a lot to be, learn from someone who also started their own business and is running it successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think restaurants are one of those, it's, it's a very difficult business like farms. And so there's a lot of overlaps. And so that's where it can be especially helpful. Right. Right. And then there's, then there's a whole host of other farmers in, in Detroit who um, are mentors and peers that I can use to t- uh, talk to bounce mm-hmm. ideas off of experiment on things borrow equipment, lend equipment. Um, if say a restaurant wants something that I don't grow, I can, I can always call someone else that I have a feeling might have it. And that way I can still be a value to the, the customer and also get business for a friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you're building a, a really good network there in Detroit then. Right. There are, there are a lot of farmers in Detroit and it's, it's a really great place to, to start a farm. Mm-hmm. How would many farmers would you say there are? I would say there's probably about 12 to 15 for-profit uh, growers in the city. Wow. That's very nice. Yeah. And, and we're all like a little, little crazy and we're all also small. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the competition isn't, fears and you know we can all be pretty friendly with each other and it's it's pretty awesome mm-hmm. very cool if there was a magic reset button as it relates to starting your farm what systems would you go back and put into place sooner i would definitely give myself more space mm. uh we when we built everything we we built it and i'm talking about the garden beds and the fields we built it for you know max production max mm-hmm. yield. Um, and now that I'm looking at buying a BCS or wanting to maybe get into things like cultivating tractors or, or PJs and different things, I wish I had more turnaround space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, and even pathway space, I, I wish I had just given myself a little bit more breathing room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree that that, that space can be super key. It just means that you have more margin for error. Right. Yeah. And it's just not something that I ever learned before until like getting into it myself because I had, I've, I've been an urban farmer since I started farming. And I I think, you know, that most urban farms are limited by space and Mm -hmm. we're trying to pack everything in as, as 
much as we can. And, uh, but now that I'm trying to get more mechanized and just, just to make things easier, I wish I just had a little bit more space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With that, I'd like to stop here and take a quick break. In a minute, we'll be back with Andy Che from Fisheye Farms. If you've been enjoying this episode so far, you're going to want to head over to growingfarmers.com backslash free resources and download our free resource bundle to help you shave hours off your week and become a thriving farmer. It includes resources such as our 10 winter growing secrets we wish we knew when we started, which is a ebook which talks about the tips and techniques to get better growth in your winter production. We teach things like the simple but counterintuitive principle that trips up most beginning growers, the shape and size of tunnels that are best for winter production, how to prepare beds so they are weed-free and get beautiful lush stands of crops, what to do about pests like aphids, voles, and slugs, how to fast-track your research to fine-tune your production for your microclimate, and how to pack in more crops for higher yields and profits. So head over to growingfarmers.com backslash free resources and download your free resource bundle today. Hey, Thriving Farmers, I am back with Andy Che from Fisheye Farms. Andy, talk to us about the labor situation. Um, you know, you farm with some help with um, Amy, and how do you divide roles? I would say it, it goes a lot by personality type. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the type to, I, I, love, I love working and I love farming. I, I want to I put my head down and, and grind tasks away and and work until, you know, nine, 10 o'clock. I think those are like the most, those are my prime, my prime hours for working. The weather's cooler. Mm -hmm. I've I've had time to get other things done and I can start working on other tasks. Um, I would say that I kind of focus on maybe the overall stuff and then the overall farm trajectory. Mm -hmm. And um, I do the marketing. Um, we split we split things like harvest and wash pack, and then Amy really handles most of the office for us, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say I I do a lot of the the farm. To, I do all the bed prep and all the seeding. Amy does all the transplanting. Uh, she does a lot of the hoop house management and also the nursery management. Uh, we had some of our best transplants this year um, because she took over the nursery. Um, mm which, you know, freed me up to work on other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do, we use steward um, for our bookkeeping and taxes. Okay. So it's nice to be able to, you know, we keep the books on our end, but then steward has access to our books and they can clean them up so that tax season isn't, isn't a stress anymore. Yeah. That's nice. Well, that's really oh, nice yeah. to have as someone that actually has, you know, like a CPA looking over things um, as the season progresses. Right, and and it's and it's an hourly thing uh, that we pay for uh, with Steward, but it's you know it's if we can keep it semi clean on our side, it's it's mm-hmm. not doesn't take them very long to yeah really clean it up. Now, is that in QuickBooks? Uh, we're using Zero, and and that's at the behest of Steward. One of oh, the interesting. Yeah, we were on QuickBooks, and then they had us transfer over. So um, we're actually on Zero too. 
And and do you like it? I feel like it's pretty similar to to QuickBooks. Yeah, and I mean, we love the integrations. The fact that like all our Stripe and PayPal integrates really sim right. seamlessly. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, it's so simple that I feel like I could run my books. I We actually pay for it. And we have a, a company called Zendu that actually um, manage all the books for us. And it's like an in-house CPA. And uh, they actually do your taxes for free as after you've used them for a year. So that's super nice because before that, we were paying a lot of money for tax work. Um, right, yeah. But I mean, I mean yeah. We still pay money for tax work, so maybe I'll have to look into that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll uh, send me an email because I think I have a referral code or something for the, them. Um, and, uh, and, and they have been like in the last couple of months, we've been built, working on the purchase for this f- new farm. And um, they have been instrumental in helping us make sure the books are all clean and that we have like our, our P&L that looks good and how to, you know, make sure that everything's like just massaging stuff to make sure we're ready, you know, to be because they went because of the whole COVID thing and because of um, we're self-employed, they pretty much do an audit of your business to make sure you're, you're healthy and fine to get a loan. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Zendu has been great for that and, uh, and really responsive. So, um, yeah, we've, we've, we've worked well with them. And again, anytime you change, um, you change, uh, systems, it's a little rocky. So when we got on board with them, you know, we had to, we had to go back and forth a little bit to make sure everything was tracking properly, but what they do is they set up rules. And so that, you know, as, as deposits come in, as expenses come in, it's automatically almost self, uh, takes the, the, the items and puts them in their own categories. So it's super simple. Yeah. And, and once, and once you start to, you know, see a pattern and the, the expenses that are coming out, it's, it's much easier for someone else to come. You know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's cool. So Amy does the, the, the office and some of the harvesting and the, um, and having someone in place to do the pr- transplant production is so key. Um, we had, yeah. I was going to say we, our transplants this year were so nice, so much better than I, I tend to, I, I call myself a over water. I'm kind of just like a, <laughs> overdoer in general like I always want to I always want to make things more complicated than they than they are and so it's nice to have Amy take that away from me and so I'm not overwatering the plants uh, I'm not uh, bringing them out and hurting them off at the wrong time and all the stuff and so it's really nice to have Amy taking that over and you know we're we're harvesting eggplants already. These are like the nicest eggplants that we've ever grown. Wow, that is nice. July second. Yeah, I, I mean, and we've been harvesting them for a week. Maybe, maybe not a bunch, but uh, yeah, they're starting to come in. And I, my friends are like, "Oh, how do you have eggplants already?" And I'm like, "That's Amy." I think. <laughs> yeah. So you farm in Detroit, um, very diverse neighborhood. How have you worked to build community and involve those around you? Um, so, you know, the, the way I look at it is we want to be a good, as a farm, we would just want to be a good neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, there's not much more we can do other than that. We're not a nonprofit with a, a mission oriented Mm -hmm. farm. We're not trying to bring kids in for education and job training. We're not bringing in uh, returning citizens or anything like, you know, anything like that. We don't have programs for community outreach. But we are in a neighborhood with people and neighbors all around us. And the best we can do is 
be a good neighbor. And to, to me, that means, you know, being respectful of their space and mm-hmm. time and quality of life. So not running tractors or weed whackers early in the morning or late at night, um, not complaining about things that they may do. And hopefully they don't complain about things that we may do and just kind of like letting people live their life as well as being there to lend a hand, um, you know, as we've been, as we've been farming and, and doing other stuff, you know, I've, I've picked up skills, um, whether it be mechanics or working on the house or just having tools in general or, mm-hmm. or a trailer to help them do stuff like that. I just, I try to be there for them for that kind of stuff. Um, and then they, a lot of them have kids and uh, we're, we're completely fine with letting their kids come over to the farm and, and play and, you know, climb on the compost pile or the mm-hmm. trees or ask us questions. And, you know, sometimes it can be a handful and it can be a bit much, but, you know, if we can give the parents some relief and let the kids come outside and play. And I know as a kid, that's the kind of stuff I like to do. I like to climb mm-hmm. on things. And so just trying to provide a, a fun safe space for the for the kids to come out and and play and interact with the farm as much or as little as as they want to mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so with that um you know you have this wine and weeding event that you listed on your instagram talk to us a little bit about that because i think that's a great idea oh it was it was a lot of fun and we're right now because of uh the covid19 situation we're, we're trying to figure out how we can bring it back safely and what what to do. But the past two years we had um, started this wine and weeding Wednesdays. So uh, Fisheye Farms, Amy and Andy, wine and weeding. We love, uh, we love the double uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. motivation. Um, And it kind of started as like a funny tongue in cheek kind of thing. Like come, come pull weeds and we'll give you some free wine. And yeah. And people really liked it. And, and we also had a lot of people always asking us, you know, how can we come and volunteer on the farm? How can we come help? And, and being a for-profit farm that wanted to become profitable, um, you know, with our own work and, and leading by example, we were never really keen on taking too many volunteers, mm-hmm. especially with some of my experience at the Comer Youth Center, you know, with volunteers and how much labor went into just managing all that mm-hmm. i try not to take too many volunteers but we decided that if we chose a day and we made it on something that we enjoyed then it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a chore for us um so we started inviting friends and and neighbors and people who had reached out to us about volunteering it was an easy answer to give people um oh can i do you accept volunteers can I come to the farm and check it out? It was easy to say, yeah, we do wine and weeding on Wednesday from four to eight o'clock and you're welcome to come stay Mm -hmm. as long as you want. And it was kind of set up. um, I wanted to get, we were trying to like maybe incorporate some of the restaurants we were working with to provide wine or maybe snacks um, and have people come out and, pour your own wine and then we would go out into the field and we would pull bindweed and purslane out of salad beds by hand mm-hmm. um which is awesome because it's hard you can't you can't do that with uh with hose and tine weeders yeah yeah those are some nasty weeds 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of bindweed. Yeah. So pulling was the best way that you found to get rid of that? Uh, we dig it out when we can. Uh, mm-hmm. If the bed is empty, say in the spring before we do a planting, we will spend the time to actually dig it out. And that seems to be pretty effective. Yeah. So if the bed is occupied at the time or we can't be digging in, we'll just pull it at the base as, as low as we can. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, we're getting it under control. I would definitely say the bindweed is looking weaker and weaker every year. Mm-hmm. That's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the purse line is starting to get a little out of hand, but um, I think uh, after listening to Ryan Teeson's uh, podcast, I'm definitely going to utilize the tine weeder a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about your marketing. Uh, where do you focus on selling? Um, so in the past, when we since we started the farm, 90% of our sales had been restaurants. Okay. Um, there was a restaurant down the street from our first garden. Um, and before we had even harvested a crop, I kind of just stopped in the restaurant um, and just kind of introduced myself. Hi, I'm Andy and I'm starting a farm just down the street. Would you be interested in buying some of our produce? And they're like, oh yeah, we, we saw you building it and we'd like to come check it out. And they came over and they saw what we're doing and, and also how small the garden was. And they're like, Oh, we could buy everything that you're growing right now. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. cool. So that was our first restaurant client. And then the restaurant world is such a like small and tight knit community that once you start working with one, it's pretty easy to start working with others. And as soon as you start to build a little name for yourself, um, the rest kind of fall into place. And uh, most of our, most of our clients come um, at the time, the restaurant clients come just came from networking and meeting people and going out there. Um, if there was a restaurant we were interested in selling to, we would, we would go there and, and order some food and look at the menu and mm-hmm. look at what they were putting in their dishes and seeing what we could provide and, you know, we'd, we'd go talk to the bartender and say, Hey, you know, we would introduce ourselves and tell about the farm. And, and that was, uh, that was how we, we met a lot of our chef clients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We were doing farmer's markets for a little while, but there, I, I feel there's a problem in Detroit with there being too many small neighborhood markets. Okay. And we, we just weren't making enough money at them. I, I love to do them. I love the uh, after hours bartering. I love mm-hmm. talking to the other vendors about what they're doing, um, what their farms are like, or, you know, just a place to talk to other vendors really. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would be spending a lot of time on the, on packing and then being there under the tent. Um, and it just wasn't really working. So last year we completely dropped uh, farmers markets and all other markets com- other than restaurants. Um, so then when uh, COVID-19 happened, it was obviously uh, a, a hard time for us and we had, we had to do something. Uh, mm-hmm. so we started with just offering a farm stand on the farm and that was really popular. And we had a line stretching down the block and uh, people coming up and we had to set up like a farm stand where things were out on the table. 
Um, we were taking Venmo and Cash App and, and also taking uh, and cash if, if that's what mm-hmm. people had. Uh, but we didn't feel safe about that anymore, uh, especially with the line. And then also didn't feel right about people waiting in line and then uh, come to find out we're out of what they wanted. Oh, um, yeah. So then we switched to doing a box model, which I think a lot of farms kind of were doing during uh, the peak of quarantine. Um, which was really great for us. And we saw how the box model worked and we saw that it would be an easy transition into CSA. Um, And so we started marketing our CSA uh, over social media and we were able to sell 80 shares in about two weeks. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I I had never taken Instagram uh, seriously. I, uh, yeah. This is one thing I was maybe going to talk about in the favorite farming tools, but maybe I'll just talk about it now and I'll do something. (laughs) That's totally fine. Uh, But I had never taken Instagram super seriously for the farm. I, I just did it as kind of like my own personal Instagram account, just kind Mm -hmm. of pictures from the farm. And, and we had a semi decent following or, you know, and I was never super concerned about it or concerned about posting regularly. But then like during uh, the COVID-19, we started to get a lot of followers and that's how we were mostly marketing our farm stand in our boxes. Um, mm-hmm. And it proved to be like a invaluable marketing tool um, for the CSA. And, uh, and now we're also getting restaurants uh, that we never worked with before reaching out to us about, um, you know, buying from us as well as individuals who just are really passionate about local food who just want to buy in bulk. And we've had a lot of people reaching out to us through social media. Mm -hmm. That's really cool to hear how that all kind of worked. And and that just kind of like seamlessly changed for you. Not seamlessly, obviously, because there's a lot of work that went into that, but just allowed you to easily um, transition your business model. Yeah. and, And a lot of it was kind of just, you know, I think everyone at the time was, you know, whether you, vocalized it or not was it's it was scary and and we just kind of jumped into things just saying we got to do something yeah let's try let's try this Uh and i think uh so far it's been it's been working out good and and we're and we're taking social media and and marketing through there a lot a lot more seriously now yeah how did you come up with the name of your farm uh, so it's, it's, it's funny. We'll get a lot of people, uh, from Google, uh, asking us for catfish or tilapia. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I always have to apologize to them. I say, I know it's a pretty misleading name, but we're a vegetable farm. Uh, so the name comes from the fisheye camera lens. Yep. Are you familiar with that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up skateboarding. Uh, mm-hmm. since I was like 13 years old, I think is when I got my first skateboard and I would, I would skateboard in downtown Detroit when it was more of a ghost town than it is now. And, uh, I feel like also kind of fostered my individual and rebellious spirit. Mm. And, um, when I was in Chicago thinking about starting the farm and trying to think about names, um, I had made two friends who were also farmers in Chicago who also skateboarded. Okay. And I had just started like 
drawing this connection between farming and, and skateboarding, which is that, you know, skateboarders are independent and they want to work with their, their bodies and they're, and they're often patient and very resilient, mm-hmm. which I think is what you need for farming. And I had a little uh, fisheye camera lens for, for the cell phone in my pocket. And I was over at the farm I was working at on, on a weekend. Uh, maybe it was, I think it might've been Labor Day weekend and it was really hot out. And I was at the farm by myself, which was unusual. I took a picture of the farm with the fisheye lens on my phone. And I just said, oh, fisheye farm. And it was just like a weird enough name that it seemed mm-hmm. to stick and it was unique. And then there's that skateboarding side of it. And I just kind of went with it. Very cool. I, I figured it was probably something with the camera side, but I wasn't quite sure, you know, what they were. Yeah, so, so yeah. like part of, and part of it is, you know, there, I could, depending on who I'm talking to about it, I could say, I could be a little, I could shy away from the skateboarding angle and just say, you know, it, it's a camera lens that takes small things and makes them look big. And it's a holistic round view of things and it's an mm-hmm. alternative view. Um, but I, you know, I, I named it because I was passionate about skateboarding. And I also feel like at the time I had a lot of friends um, who didn't have as much direction in their life as I felt like I had because of farming. And I, and I thought that, maybe farming is something that they would be into and maybe not my friends themselves at the time, but people like me and, and them who are super passionate and dedicated, but don't quite know where to put all that passion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about new farmers. Cause you've been now farming for a few years and I'm sure you've seen that uh, different farms come and go. What is the biggest mistake that you see beginning farmers making? Uh, I would say starting too big and overinvestment in the beginning. Mm. You know, we, we started really small and I, I'm grateful for that because it allowed us to build a market without making mistakes or Mm -hmm. at least not making costly mistakes. Um, and I, I would just caution, um, any new farmer, um, from taking on too much because it, it does require a lot of work. And when things start to get uh, out of control, it's, it's hard to, to stop that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that's we, where you start to get a little sloppy. And sometimes when you get sloppy, you get careless and careless leads to accidents. Right. And, and also it, it makes it harder to, to sell the vegetables and your farm and yourself when you're, you're struggling. It's, it's much easier to have a small space do the best you can on that and provide top quality produce and, and be available for people rather than being, you know, stuck in the weeds. Mm-hmm. If you could pick one, what would be your favorite farming tool? So I guess other than Instagram, uh, I would say the collinear hoe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I love, uh, I love planting like carrots and beets uh to to the hoe width and and running a hoe and right down the road such a satisfying feeling and um you know i love the the clean beds afterwards i i really like the mutineer uh to have different widths and just keeping that keychain yeah 
Um, yeah, I got I got to go with the collinear hoe. Okay. Yeah, I, that's actually some, one of the things that I find myself reaching for most of the time. It's just so versatile, and it actually does a really good job in the pathways. I feel too. It's got enough of a bite to to, to bite in and, and get out any weeds in the pathways. Right. We and we use we use a hula hoe um, in the pathways and okay, yeah, just because that's like that's the hoe we beat up. Um, gotcha. Yeah. If there's if there's some, a big um, like chicory at the edge of a bed, like I'm going for the hula hoe and I'm just chopping away at it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you believe that now is the best time to be starting a farm? I I think so. I th- I mean, especially with COVID nineteen, um, and people, I think, are really starting to see the cracks in the industrial food system. Mm-hmm. And we've just seen like amazing demand uh, for our produce, and and people are so appreciative of what of what we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's such a wealth of knowledge out there now, podcasts, books. I I wish there was you know half the or maybe I, I sh- should have known about some of the stuff when I first started farming, but I I didn't. And if I had known about some of these educational resources out there, I could have saved myself some time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a wealth right now out there. And so the biggest aspect is how do people find it all? So, I mean, that's actually something we're working on right now. And our company is, is, is optimizing our SEO. And, because and how do you filter all this information? I could, it's, you know, it's slightly a double-edged sword. It's hard, it's hard to know exactly what to do because mm-hmm. there are so many opinions. And I would also say to new farmers that, you know, don't be afraid to make some mistakes on your own. And sometimes... Sometimes you got to try something and, um, you know, and if you, if you mess it up or if you fail, at least you learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's your failing forward. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people are like, I don't want to start until I know it's going to work out really, really well, but you're not going to know it's going to work out really, really well until you try. Right. And there's, and there's something to be said for following, um, what people have put out there before you uh mm-hmm. there, there have been times where maybe i got a little a little cocky and was like i i'm gonna try to do something different i'm gonna i'm gonna plant peppers in a one-by-one grid in a hoop house and uh it was a total fail okay i actually i actually thought that might work <laughs> was it just too tight it was too tight the peppers started to um reach for the light and they were getting too spindly okay and then you go through and you and you're trying to harvest and you're swimming through peppers and you're just damaging them the whole time okay okay so what do you have for spacing now on those so now we have peppers two rows per 30 inch bed at a one and a half foot spacing yeah that's exactly what i would would yeah 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 and they look way better yeah. Like I, said, I, I tend to try to overdo everything and I'm always trying to pack it in tight. So now I, I listen to Hannah and Amy a little bit more about <laughs> Now, do you trellis your, your peppers? Uh, we have, yeah, we have our peppers mostly on uh, tomahawks. We have some outdoor field peppers, uh, which uh, we're doing shishitos and uh, Thai chili outdoors. Yep. So not staking. Um, but then we have a bunch of peppers that are either on tomahawks or on bamboo okay yeah we would just usually do a box um 
a box trellis. So basically you just stake every third plant in the row and then just wrap string around the entire thing. Okay, like like you would like a, a tomatoes. Yes, yeah, like a, it's like a, a Florida weave almost, but we didn't go back and forth. We just wrapped the entire outside. Yeah. So we, um, we already had like the um, overhead trellis system in the in the hoop house, or and yeah. extra tomahawks. So we're like, let's just let's do it that way. Well, and two, probably the inside varieties you're using would work really well on those too, right? Yeah, and uh, and we also have our eggplant on tomahawks right now. And cool. Yeah. Have it, you gr grafted eggplant? I have not. I haven't done any any yeah. grafting. I'm I'm interested in it, especially tomatoes. Um, so we have one of our SFU members who is grafting egg uh, watermelons. Oh wow. Yeah, and they're seeing really good success. Um, they've had a tough season so far, so I'm gonna have to check in in a couple weeks here and see how things are coming. They already had fruit about two weeks ago on them, um, but yeah, I mean eggplant does really well. Um, Watermelon supposedly does really well. And then of course the tomatoes are something that people standardly just uh, graft. And but are you grafting eggplants and watermelon on eggplant rootstock and watermelon rootstock? Yeah, so actually I'm not 100% sure about the watermelon. I think the watermelon is on a gourd of some sort. Um, it just basically, it's trying to get on something that's super, super vigorous. And with the eggplant, mm -hmm. you're just actually going on a tomato rootstock because they're in the same family, technically. Right. Um, usually we got a little bit lower take rate on the eggplant, but, um, I mean, but for my gosh, the yield was astronomical. It was like that's six, awesome. six foot tall plants. So. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely something that will start to get into especially as um you know we start to nail our our nursery production down much much more tight yeah well um andy where can people find out more about you uh you can check us out on instagram at fisheye farms uh, we also have a website uh, fisheyefarms.com we have a market set up there if you're another farmer and you want to check out our pricing or anything like that you can check that out there's also pictures we do a blog for our csa members um that's also publicly available um yeah so uh, check us out on social media or check our website out awesome so andy thank you so much for your time today this was a fun interview i really enjoyed just diving into the the nuts and bolts of farming urbanly and uh it's something yes it's really cool Thanks. I had fun too. Hey, Thriving Farmers, that's all for this episode, but join us next week as I interview Rachel Miller, who is a online marketer and businesswoman. So Rachel talks all about how she's built her um, very successful online business, teaching people how to use social media. And so she comes on and she'll share all about different tips on how to leverage social media yourself and uh, make sure you're doing it right. Uh, make sure you can beat the algorithm and not waste money on ads. So join me next week as I interview Rachel Miller on the podcast. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.